Hello, I'm Matt Williams, and you're listening to the Voice of Conservation podcast for the face of conservation. Today, I'm in conversation with Judy Ling Wong, poet, artist, and president of the Black Environment Network. Otherwise, you get the weird mobile phone noise. Oh, God. <laughs> the, the sort of spectrum of yeah. everything you need to think of. I'll turn it off. I don't want to completely turn it off. That's good. So. So, the idea is to try and have a bit of a conversation and forget that that's there, really. Okay, do you want it to be a conversation where we hear questions and answers, or are you going to edit out the questions? No, I'll, I'll keep everything, basically. Good, good. Yeah, it's kind of unedited, good. really. Um, and I, t- I took my inspiration from this On Being podcast, where they have the sort of 45-minute version, where it's edited and there's music yeah. and there's little s- segues. Yeah. But they also provide the hour and a half completely unedited conversation and actually they find you that that's more it. popular with um with their yeah. listeners yeah. <laughs> so that's quite interesting um okay judy thank you very much for for taking the time to to speak to me today um it's really exciting to speak to you um i've been delving into your work a little bit over the past couple of days and reading some of the stuff that you've written um i always start by asking everyone the same question which is was nature and wildlife something that was important for you growing up I grew up in Hong Kong as a child. Uh-huh. Hong Kong before it has become a completely built-up city as it is now. Yeah. And in my childhood, I loved being in the countryside. And we also had a very small garden. And it's amazing how tiny patches of nature, as long as they give you that feeling of wildness, can do so much to anchor you because they're right next to you. And I think this is something that I always go back to when people say, oh, you want nature in the city and so on, it's not possible, it's all nonsense and so on. There's no space, we're increasingly going to be built over. But you are, if you are careful and you find those small pockets, but actually go out of your way to create a sense of wildness mm. in the smaller space, mm. it can do an enormous amount for people. Mm. So do you have any particular memories of particular spaces or particular animals that you saw growing up that affected you or inspired you? I think the most impressive space is that towards the back of our garden there was a thing that I called a cliff. It wasn't really a cliff, (laughs) but uh, it sort of went straight up for about 20 feet, you know. And uh, we have a very, very rainy sort of summer in Mm. Hong Kong, very oppressive, almost tropical, it is subtropical. And we have a tree called the flame of the forest. And this little bit of garden that's like a cliff at the back, the water sort of drips down the front of it. And because we had a row of trees called the flame of the forest that was right against this cliff, the branches sort of bent towards it and formed a kind of tunnel. So when I'm in this tunnel, I feel like I'm really in a very mysterious place. Mm. And before the leaves come on, that's why it's called the flame of the forest, the trees are covered in red flowers. So it's like the forest is on fire. Mm. 
So this sort of very damp, moist, dark thing looking through the bright red flowers into the sun was an amazing experience. <laughs> You're the second person, actually. It's really interesting to describe a kind of magical, very small place that they found as a child that took on a really important meaning to them. It seems to be maybe less common these days, but certainly for my generation and people older than that, it seems to, be ver to have been a very important kind of part of growing up. I think it also supplies a, a circumstance where you have a very private communion with nature. Mm. And you can almost, in being yourself and not relating to other people or children, you really deeply relate to nature in, in a way they almost disappear into it. And I, I think that kind of deep experience is actually something I try to make people think about and supply in places so that children can have that kind of experience. And what role did nature play in your in your family life or in the culture that you were part of growing up? Well, in China, nature is the basis of so many things mm -hmm. in our philosophy, in our arts and so on. For example, I'm an artist. In China, like in so many other countries, there are particular art forms that each country sort of focuses on and notices talent when children are very young. Mm -hmm. For example, in the UK, it's musicians. You can violinists who are sort of professional when they're 10 and 12 yeah. and things like that because music is so important. Theatre is the same. So you have children in the West End as part of musicals and so on because it's such a serious pursuit. And in China, part of that is painting. Right. So because I was very, very good at drawing when I was little, I was then sent to an artist studio when I was little. Right. And I was a professional Chinese painter at the age of 12. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it felt very natural to me because I just sort of grew into it. Yeah. And in China, the arts are based completely on nature symbolism. Okay. In a sense, it is abstract because you take the, the elements of nature and they are painted in almost abstract representation. And then you basically make compositions and they're supposed to convey emotion and spirituality. So, mm. for example, the, the um, one I gravitated to in the end, I actually moved right away from color into black and white ink because mm -hmm. we maintain that in black there's seven colors. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. And in the way you use it and so on, and I gravitated to the subject of bamboo, uh -huh. which I felt suited my personality very much, and it painted all the emotions of the human being through this. I mean, sometimes people tend to think of the most popular pictures, which always tend to be pretty and beautiful and flowers and everything, and, or even the gracefulness of bamboo. But you also have subject matter which about the struggle of the human spirit, so you would paint bamboo in storm. Right. Yeah. So we're very, very close to nature in China, in everything we think and do. And of course, we don't see ourselves as separate from nature. Mm. Can you say a little bit more about there being seven colours within the colour black? Because I think, I think part of what people who observe nature do is spot detail that maybe you don't spot if you don't look so closely. And it sounds like maybe that's a similar kind of thing. You spot variety if you start to look I think to look in more. a way, 
you know, if you go back to black and white films, mm. you also have a different way of seeing, don't you? Mm. Yeah. From making color films. Yeah. I think that's kind of difference where when you make a black and white film, you're really conscious of the effect of light and shadow and the way things are shaped and so on. And also the other thing is, is that all of us have seen the landscape in black and white in moonlight. Mm. People don't think about that. Mm. But that also has a very, very beautiful atmosphere of another level of um, sensitivity, actually, to go into that apparently more bare kind of expression, but it has a different kind of richness that extends to into the spectrum of spirituality more than color. Right. Mm. And was was nature something that was influencing your art even at that age, and your experiences even just in your back garden, things like that? Yes, I think that I felt so much part of it because the culture was like that mm. that I didn't really think about it. You, mm. you, they always say that you see your country and your culture more clearly when you leave. Yeah. <laughs> so I do when I look at how other people see things, especially when I first came to the West, yeah. that I do see how immersed I am in nature even now. Right, And of course those sort of states that you talk about that so many people have experience of being alone in nature, of being in that silence where you don't speak in words in your mind, mm. but you can feel the feeling and the movement of your own mind. It's very close to meditation, isn't it? Mm. Yes, that's true. Yes. Yeah, yes. I find that in my own personal experiences yes. of spending time in nature. Yes. And also, even in painting, it's the same, and in calligraphy, you know, traditionally, we often meditate before we paint. Because again, we reach into the inner self because of the importance of spirituality in art. And the medium is so fast, you know, you don't sketch, you paint on rice paper. Whereas you move across the rice paper, it's basically watercolor. On rice paper, which as you know, is like blotting paper or tissue paper. You drop water and it just spreads. Mm. So the speed and rhythm of your hand is completely exposed. Right. And you would finish a painting very, very quickly. If you make a mistake, you just throw it away, basically. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Which is horrendous. You throw away an awful lot of paper. <laughs> and, uh, but that kind of um, concentration you need to be instant in your expression, to be yeah. so focused, it's more yeah. like painting a state of mind. Mm. Yeah, I was speaking to someone else about this recently, about um, the poet Andrew Motion, actually. I was, just, I was chatting to him last week, um, and he was talking about how, for him, spending time in nature or observing, he particularly loves observing trees, he told me, makes him feel like he can access different speeds of thinking, whether it's slowing down or, as you say, whether it's kind of being more immediate and more kind of reactionary and not overthinking things so much. That thing of speed seems to be really important. Yes, and um, I'm also a poet, and I've been writing poetry since I was around six or seven. Right. And, and uh, of course, in China, as you know, painting and poetry is one on the page. Well, I learned this as I was reading through your website and some of what you've written. I didn't, I wasn't so familiar with the idea of the, the kind of integration of the two. Yeah, so they are one, and uh, and because I've been doing it for so long, and, and again, like you just mentioned, you know, about the state of mind, the feel of your mind, and what you're in touch with, and where you are, 
I find that when I live in a certain rhythm mm. in which I have space, instead of being inundated with everything that comes at you nowadays, then poetry just comes. If I allow myself to be overwhelmed by the kind of more manic rhythm of life, nothing comes. <laughs> <laughs> you know? and, uh, and there are two kinds of poets as well. One kind is that they have an idea and they have all these formats and strict kinds of structures for poems and they really work at a poem. Mm -hmm. There's a second kind of poem I call the downloading kind. <laughs> Where you become inspired and the poems just come to you, even really long ones, and I'm the downloading kind. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so does, does Chinese poetry have all, the, all that variety of different styles of poetry within it as well as the Western canon of poetry does, or does it have particular particular rules about that sort of thing? Or? It has both. Again, they're very structured ones, mm -hmm. like there are things like couplets, and they would have um, uh, sort of, um, you know, like in, in poetry here, you have these things called iambic pentameters, mm -hmm. and things like that, yeah, where you have something rhythms. like that. Yeah. In Chinese, for example, of couplets and so on, the first syllable has to go down, the second one go up, and all this sort of stuff mm -hmm. to make the sound and the song of the couplet. And uh, the other thing that's so interesting is that we don't think of ourselves as individuals. Okay. You know, China, China doesn't believe in copyright until recently when it decided it's good commercially. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, before, not so long ago, a couple of decades ago, they didn't believe in copyright because they believe that all inspiration that produces art or invention and so on does not belong to the individual, comes through the individual, but belongs to everyone. Mm. So we have this sense of whatever you produce, you have to share, mm. because it doesn't belong to you. So yeah. it's a very different way of being. And in some of your work on, on ethnic diversity and ethnic inclusion in the natural world, that sense of shared ownership comes through, comes through very powerfully. Um, I just want to ask about... Um, through the course of your life, Hong Kong and China have been through huge yes. kind of cultural and social change and one of the impacts in part has been industrial, you know, increasing industrialization and impacts on the natural world and part of that is driven by Western demand for goods and for mm. energy and for resources. Is that, you know, uh, what, what, what do you feel that you've witnessed and what do you feel has changed? Well. You know, there are three Chinas, mm -hmm. culturally. You know, there was old China, which was before Mao, very traditional, and probably closer to the spiritual and cultural elements that you would see as purely Chinese. And that survives best in Taiwan. Right. Yeah. yeah. A lot of people took it over there, and they dominated the local culture, and they carried this very traditional thing to Taiwan. And then there's Mao's China, which is now very different. You know, Mao actually believed that a lot of the culture of China held progress back. Mm -hmm. And he believed that he was for the people and he imported, as you know, a lot of Marxist and Soviet art into China. And you see lots of sculptures going like this, with yeah. their fists in one direction. <laughs> And the, and the domination and so on. So, yeah. so the quality of that spirituality he thought was too introverted and wasn't affecting society and changing things. It actually, he, he also called a lot of the 
beliefs, about comments on the opium of the people, so that they suffered and they said nothing. Right. They thought it was supposed to be like that. Okay. So he destroyed religion, he destroyed culture and spiritual and beliefs and art in order to move China forward on a clean slate. Yeah. You know, so so the the feeling of China nowadays is a very different China from what is traditional. Yeah. And then there's a third China, which is the British colony of Hong Kong, which mm -hmm. of course now has been given back. Yeah. But that the first lot of people who ran into Hong Kong, because Hong Kong was, was a, a sort of nothing sort of place of hardly a population, so 200 fishermen, and it was a dock more than anything else. But because it was British, with all the revolution, the troubles, people began to pour into Hong Kong. And before 1949, which is the year that I was born, there was no border. People just walked across. Because nobody bothered, you know, who would want to go to that place anyway? There's nothing there. It's a barren island, no water, nothing. So when people started to pour across into Hong Kong in huge numbers, Britain then built the bamboo curtain in 1949. Right. And uh, cut it off. And then because people poured over into Hong Kong again, it was a different population. You know, all the rich and influential people, they went to Taiwan. All the people could just walk, peasants and everybody, just poor as a population in Hong Kong, very different population. And then the people who came from further afield were again the more knowledgeable and people who had a little bit of money in order to be able to come all the way from the north of China into Hong Kong. So this population also carried traditional China. They carried them within themselves and they came from very different parts of China, which in a way are different countries mm. because it's, a, it's really a continent rather than a country. And uh, so it, there was a, a huge mixing even among the Chinese peoples in Hong Kong. And then of course came the British and the very international influence. So we carried within us the traditional culture, but with no one to tell us what to do with it. And at the same time, there was a parallel international sort of influences, and that's the way in which I grew up. Right. Yeah. And do you do you feel that there's a a bit of a dichotomy now between the economic progress, which in some senses is having damaging effects on the natural world, but the culture which you speak about, which places so much importance on connection to nature? Very much so, and I think there's different views. There's in a way a kind of get out clause for China in this thing of we are nature too, because mm. we are nature too, our destruction is also natural. Mm. So it's, it's an ironic <laughs> thing, you know. Yeah. We are nature, you know? we, we're doing this we're as part of, of nature. Yeah. So it, it, it is a, as a, a weird thing in a way that yeah. we protect ourselves as much as protecting nature. So yeah. So that you would find in China that that kind of view goes on all the time. The people are as important as nature. Yeah. So you don't have this um, adoration of nature, but a merging of how we make a decision. And in a way, the cities and the urban areas of the world are being challenged with that same kind of circumstance. How do you balance your own survival and your own needs mm. that are so much more urgent in the city? Mm. with your need for nature mm. and the needs of nature. Mm. That is the big, big challenge of, of the day. <laughs> it really is. 
And in some cases as well, those those needs are perhaps not so immediately, but some of those needs are predicated on and a part of the natural world as well. The need for food relies on a healthy natural world too, right? And the quality of food. Yeah. The quality of soil that yeah. we are destroying so much in this country, yeah. for example, and don't think about enough in the environmental movement. You see, in, in, um, in the UK, when I look at it, I see the environmental movement, first of all, is, is very much based on woodlands and the idea of, of natural habitat and, and so on. And other things that are just as important are not as accentuated. Like I said, you know, farming and the quality, quality of the soil. Mm-hmm. You know, the ordinary population should also think about what is happening to nature in terms of how we farm and what we grow, what we eat as part of nature, mm. and quality of the soil which we destroy as part of nature. And then it seems like we're also very ground buying. We never look up the stars. You know, that is a magnificent thing, the sky mm. as part of nature. And to, to think about the air, just because it's invisible, like the worst pollutant at the moment is invisible. So that hasn't been that kind of outcry. If it had been coal smoke and you could see it, mm. then there would be a much more an outcry. So that kind of awareness as modern people and scientific people merging with this love of nature, I think there's a lot to be done in terms of the way we are aware and therefore the way we shape what we do next. Well, I think that's part, for me, that's really interesting because part of the power of poetry and of art is that it means that we can sort of touch and feel mm. things that at other times are maybe invisible to us. And here in London, you know, this is a city which is in breach of European air pollution regulation and the UK government is potentially going to be sued by the European Union for failing to meet its legal obligations. But it's a problem that, you know... Until until very very recently, people hadn't really grasped onto because, as you say, it's invisible and we can't see it. Yes, and to find space within people's lives to find that loving connection with nature. You know, I worked in in nature conservation and in integrating ethnic minorities and cultures into the environmental movement mm. you know, since 1987. Right, that's a long time ago, and um, I find that. I can collapse the whole of those decades of work into two sentences, which is, we love what we enjoy, we protect what we love. Mm. Yeah. But inside that simple sentence, the first sentence, we love what we enjoy, is that you have to have access to what you're going to enjoy. Yeah, so the whole question of how you get in touch with nature so that people can enjoy and love it. Mm. Once they love it, if you tell someone what they love is being ruined, they will act. You don't even have to you know, drag them to it. They will do it because they love it. Yeah. And in that lies the whole thing of loving and protecting nature. It's really true. We enjoy what we experience, and we have to experience it for ourselves. Even you know, just seeing it on our television screens probably isn't enough, mm. right? I think um, I think a really good example of people experiencing something and relating back to talking about soils was um, was some of the flooding over the past couple of years and particularly this winter just gone by when the the way that we farm and manage the land in this country and the decline of soils was really brought home to people because flooding and and the water and the power of rivers 
brought that into people's homes in towns and cities across the UK. Absolutely. And I think the other thing that is very dramatic in a way perhaps necessary as a wake-up call is the experience of the sheer power of nature. Mm. You know, in a way we're, we're too confident mm. as modern peoples about science and how we can control the world. But when you experience the sheer power of nature that you cannot stop and will destroy everything, mm. it is time to take notice. So what was it um, What was it that brought you to the West? When did you move to, to the UK or to the West from, from Hong Kong? Well, I have a history that most people have when they are displaced from their own country. My life has been a story of displacement, really. You know, that my parents ran out of China because of all the fighting mm -hmm. and so on into British Hong Kong. And then British Hong Kong, ironically, although it, this tiny little peninsula and island belonged to the British and was, was so-called unfairly given to the British, that's why China wanted it back, from the Opium Wars, mm. where China was saying to the to the British, you shouldn't sell opium in our country, and the British actually said, it's just trade, if people want to buy it, why can't we sell it? You know, you cannot destroy our stock. And there was a war, and they dominated China, and was given Hong Kong mm. as part of that. But, um, but Hong Kong, ironically being British, still gave the Republic of China the right of presence, because they're right next to it. Yeah. They're too powerful. Had no water, it actually has to buy water from China to keep everyone in Hong Kong alive, you know, and things like that. So if China wanted to, they don't even have to fight. They just switch off the tap, basically. Right. It was that kind of... So, so ironically, there were all these people in Hong Kong who had run out of China, and they find that in Hong Kong itself is the presence of the Republic of China. So there was a lot of fighting, for example, in the streets when we went, on, went to school, you would see loads of army people with rivals with bayonets you know, and things like that through the streets and, and things like that. It was quite a horrific time, so there was instability. So the mentality of the people of Hong Kong is that as soon as we get enough money, we're going to either leave, or if we can't leave as a family, there's not enough money then we would send our children overseas mm -hmm. to escape Hong Kong because they thought that Hong Kong, they didn't really believe that Hong Kong had a future. Yeah. So I was one of the children who were sent overseas to school. Right. Yeah, and when I was sent overseas at the age of 15, I went to Australia okay. all by myself without anybody. Yeah. Uh, I was actually told that there's enough money to go but not enough money to come home for holidays. So once you go, you're gone. And the success of the story, we were told, is that you never come back. <laughs> yeah. If you make a life for yourself there, yeah. then that yeah. succeeded. Okay. So I was this place. I went to Australia, and I had huge culture shock. Imagine you're 15, you arrive in a place that they spoke English with an Australian accent, which I could not understand for six months. Yeah. It was horrific. So yeah. I was really isolated in the boarding, so I couldn't speak to anybody. Yeah. And uh, so I had a very, very difficult time in Australia. And then I left and came to Europe. Okay. Yeah. How, long, how long were you in Australia for then? 
about seven and a half to eight years. Okay. Yeah, I went to university there. Okay, and then you came to to the UK or to? No, no, because I, I actually did something quite horrible. <laughs> what happened was I got so depressed about being in Australia, and I did not want to be an architect. My parents became very practical, saying you could draw very well, so be an architect and make <laughs> lots of money, you'll be fine. Yeah. And but I got so depressed, I was convinced that I'm an artist.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I dreamed of Europe. This is a young person's dream because I grew up in Britain, so. I had this romantic dream of Europe as、yeah. being where all the culture was, you know, and、uh, and I didn't see Australia as that, especially in those days.、Yeah. Australia was going through a period you call anti-culture、mm-hmm. to find their own identity, which、mm-hmm. means that they dropped everything、right. and tried to identify with who they were as Australians. So I was there when all that was happening. So it was very, very、uh, difficult for me as well. So, one summer when I was very very unhappy, instead of finishing my course at university, I took all the money out of the bank, bought a plane ticket, and left. <laughs> oh my gosh! I know. I just had a black backpack. I had a dream of Europe. I bought a plane ticket. I said, "I'm going to Europe. I'm not going to finish this." And I was in Europe for a whole month before I settled down in West Berlin and wrote to my father saying, <laughs> "Dear father, I'm in Germany." My father said, "What? What do you mean you're in Germany?" I said, "I can't do this. I'm a painter." And you know what he said? He was so kind. He said, "Okay, okay." Wow. You've always been special. You were a painter when you were a child. I know this. Try it. I'll support you. See what happens. That's amazing. I mean, that's amazing bravery on your part to just and desperation. Do that, yeah, yeah, and amazingly understanding on his part as yes, well. Yes, it was、that's、amazing. Incredible. Yes, so he supported me. I stayed in West Berlin until I couldn't stay there anymore because、mm-hmm. my Hong Kong passport didn't allow me to stay there. Yeah. And the only place I could come to was Britain. Right.、So、I came to London. Yeah. And when I came here, I loved it. Yeah. So I stayed. Amazing. And it. So, so both in Hong Kong and in Australia, it sounds like you experienced countries that were going through very big cultural changes、mm. at the times when you lived there, and、um, Hong Kong under British ownership. I, I wonder. So, did did this kind of did this experience of one country sort of controlling or owning another affect your transition into working on ideas of who owns the countryside and nature and who has access to it? We grew up in an atmosphere in which my parents thought all politics was bad news. It gets you killed.、Mm. That's the way it was in China,、mm. because the fighting was so terrifying that that、uh, nobody in the end, everyone was so confused. They didn't really know what to do as ordinary people. They just wanted to run.、Mm. My father always said, you, you know, when when there's chaos like that, it doesn't matter which side you're on. If if you are not a soldier and so on. And you're an ordinary person. All you do is run,、mm. and they encourage us never to be involved in politics,、mm. and to find our own way as people in the world. So I had a mentality like that, very, very much so. And、um, so for a long time, I shied away from power of any kind.、Mm-hmm. So it took me a long time, for example, to to find my way into, in a way, influencing power. In the work with policy and so on that I did with 
black environment network influencing policy in the way people do things and, and so on in this country. So it's, it's been a long time that I grew out of standing alongside power and seeing that it is important to stand alongside power to achieve what we want. Mm. So the thing I'm doing with um, being on the steering group of the campaign to make London into a national park city. Ah, fantastic, yeah. You know, yeah. It's very much about winning over all the politicians at council level, at the wards, and then proceeding to, to work through democracy into having structure and support at all levels. Although we want people to do things as themselves, in behavior change and in access to nature for their children, in doing things in their everyday lives, in supporting and understanding sound science in the way they act and so on. At the same time, an enormous thing is to have it at the center of power. So we have the mayor's support, we are very happy. The new mayor? Yes. Great. Good. That's really exciting. Yes. Can you just say a little bit more for people who haven't heard about it, about the concept, the idea of, us, of London as a city national park and where that's come from? Well, it came out of an idea, which is from Daniel Raven Allison. And uh, he had this idea and I knew him and various people knew him. And when we heard about it, he sort of was quite frivolous about it at the moment. He says, this is a good idea, isn't it? And, and you know how, how ideas just come when you're not quite sure where that they might lead. Mm -hmm. So the group of people around him, including myself and so on, really were fired up by this idea. So we began to talk about it and to develop it. And some of the people we knew included um, Alison Barnes, who was on the London Sustainable Development Commission, as well as being the head of New Forest National mm -hmm. Park. She was very, very enthusiastic and supportive. And through various people and so on, the discussions and so on, it gained momentum. It's a terrific idea because we have national parks and they're seen as concentrating on the outstanding areas of beauty to preserve for the future, which is wonderful. Yeah. But then a lot of large cities also have outstanding areas. But for a city, that is for us not enough. In order to benefit the whole population, the whole concept of a national park city differs from a national park in that we will pay attention to the whole of the city. Mm. So besides the outstanding areas, areas at every level, mm. including especially the areas where there is no nature, to find opportunities for nature into completely and absolutely making efforts alongside people to ratchet up the presence and the quality of nature mm -hmm. across the city. So it's that kind of idea. And also paying attention to buildings. Bu buildings people think of as not being part of nature. They are. Every bit of material, this wooden table we have beside us mm. was a tree mm. and still is a tree for me. You know. These carpets, if you have wool on it, you're standing on the backs of sheep. <laughs> the water you have in your glass, mm. we're drinking the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah. It comes across, falls mainly on whales before it gets to us. But we're constituted of nature and you know, stone and concrete are really mountains. So if you think of it, the way we rip resources and elements of nature and put it and structure it in the cities and so on, 
if we were more aware, would we use materials differently? We will also infuse more beauty into the way we use it. So we find that the built environment, public squares, the way buildings are, whether you can have green roofs wherever is possible, even more indoor plants and so on to give that sense. And we find that that thinking of the continuity is so important in an urbanizing global world. Mm. So if we can pull it off in London, and we already have interest from Delhi, from Santa Catarina in, in Brazil and so on. And so it might become a movement to be more aware of the potential of cities to become national parks. And do you find you get much interest from NGOs and particularly from the big conservation NGOs in this country? Because one of my analyses of them is that for many decades they also have focused on, you know, quite rightly, the amazing natural spaces and wildlife that we find very much in our countryside. But I think I share some of the same opinions as you, which is that particularly with an increasingly urbanizing population in this country and around the world, particularly where the majority of people who are deprived or have, you know, socioeconomically aren't as well off, um, are found in cities, we need to almost entirely shift our focus or, you know, split our resources much more evenly between what big conservation NGOs do in the countryside and what they do in urban areas as well. Well, there's a lot of it at stake for it, mm. you know, for them. Mm. Uh, because in Britain now, statistically, 80% of the population is in urban areas. Mm. In a way, the nature conservation movement and the love of nature that grows out of generations who had access to that nature before mm. they started massively to move into the cities. We're still living on the ideas and the passion and motivation of those generations. Mm. If we're not careful and we don't provide the circumstances within cities for this generation to get close and to love nature and therefore protect it, we are lost. The nature conservation will be lost. The organizations that only work for that are becoming very conscious of the importance of building up their presence and the influence and presence of nature in the cities now. So we have them right with us in this idea of National Park City because of that. It's very exciting for them too because, you know, there are structures, nature conservation organizations, their constitutions allow them to really focus on pure nature. Mm-hmm. There's one that CTV which has changed. They changed their constitution as part of the awareness that I raised about the importance of people and nature. Yeah. So they actually rewrote their constitution so that they work for the benefit of people and nature. Right. So they are way ahead okay. you know, in terms of what they can do as a structure. So more needs to come. And as part of the movement for National Park City, I hope that not only do we bring forward more this kind of integrated work from environmental organizations, but we begin to do it on the other side, which is the ordinary community organizations that at the moment are all about people. Mm. They have this rising awareness that being outside activities, being in nature, has such benefits for mental health, well-being, physical health, and so on, that for the benefit of people, that they too begin to integrate nature onto their agenda. We love to work with you know, organizations like Action for Children, for example, mm-hmm. 
to see that you know by integrating this approach and the way they work with it, the way they shape the activities for children, so that we can begin to bring the two sides together and open up that whole field. Mm -hmm. And there are vast numbers of community-based organizations, far more than environmental organizations. Huge power for change. Could you say a little bit about where Black Environment Network came from, and in your own words, why it's important that ethnic minorities have access to nature and why it's important for nature that they care about it? Well, it, we started in 1987 at a time when nature conservation organizations were really and strictly nature conservation organizations. Mm. So when we actually went to them and said, why don't you involve ethnic minorities? They were quite shocked because they had problems even thinking about involving ordinary people <laughs> of any kind, yeah. white people. Yeah. In those days, they were interested in volunteers. They were interested in the converted. It was very much about, you love nature? Come and work with us for nature. Be a volunteer. So it was very much, the whole thing was people for nature and mm -hmm. nothing else. The idea of nature for people didn't enter their heads. Mm -hmm. yeah? So when we started to bring in this idea of involving ethnic groups, when you involve ethnic minorities, the people who are neglected, ironically, their lives are integrated. They don't fragment. So when you go to them talk about nature, and they've never really been involved in nature conservation organizations, so their ideas of being with nature involved everyday life. They want to picnic in nature. Mm -hmm. You know, they want some pot plants, which the nature conservation got really frowned at. So we, we talked about gardens. We talked about pot plants as links to nature, and so which nowadays are becoming commonplace. Mm. Yeah. In those days, it was very weird. So we were starting off the whole wheel of thinking about access to nature at all the levels in ordinary people's lives. In those days, in a way, we were, in a way, foreseeing what we now call sustainable development, mm. the integration of community and nature in the approach to, to the whole thing. So we worked in those days and started opening up minds and people began to see that and they began even to see that the methodology we were developing of doing things like going for a walk into a nature reserve and you would stop at the tree and you would do storytelling, you know. And so many traditional stories are actually about protection of nature because in those days when we lived with nature, if you didn't protect nature, you were dead. You needed to eat your animals. They need to keep being there. <laughs> you know, you yeah. need to take care of your trees so they produce fruit and all this sort of thing. So all those things and using the arts so that people did things in nature and so on, all these ideas were new to the then nature conservation movement in many ways, but they found it very useful in working for another class of people which are very like us, the disadvantaged and the excluded working class, the people in council estates and so on, who were also very isolated from nature in the urban areas. So it was in a way giving impetus and methodology and so on and rethinking mm. about people and nature that we were so much a part of within the environmental movement. And we had the idea that we do not want to separate ethnic minorities because we have an integrative view within the population. Mm -hmm. So how we measured our success is that at the end of every project in which we facilitated contact with environmental organizations, helped them to, to be trained to work sensitively with different cultures and so on, 
that all these projects belonged to them and they carried on the work in the mainstream working as, with ethnic minorities. So sometimes he will say to us, you have such a presence across the UK, how come you're always so small? We don't understand it. And we say, the network becomes bigger and bigger, but we have very few projects because everything we finish, they belong in the mainstream. We want the mainstream to do ethnic minority projects, not us. We don't want to be separate. And our success is going to be measured by us actually disappearing in the end mm. to be part of the mainstream. And to recognize that there's a huge missing contribution if we don't unlock this energy within the minority groups and within all disadvantaged groups as well. So nowadays we, we actually have nearly finished a job because all environmental organizations are aware and do work with ethnic groups even if they don't do it to the extent or the quality we want at times. But there's also a question of money because you always need to compete for money within the spectrum of what you do. And now, even now, of course, as I have mentioned, the constitution of environmental organizations keeps saying this is for nature and not for people. Mm. So that even when there are lots of benefits of people to people in the nature projects they do, you'll find that in the reports to funders, they'll report on the nature benefits and not the people benefits. Because in a way, it'll get them into trouble. There's all people benefits if all the money was the nature benefits. <laughs> you know, they need to change their constitution so yeah. they can unlock their other part and, and do these other kinds of projects, which is, is two-way. So, and now, of course, as you know, within the cities, the ethnic minority presence is so huge. London is 41%. And generation after generation, we see ourselves as British. We are British. The other thing I want to say is that we also promote the image of ethnic minority as something that defines you culturally and in which you find the essence of culture and heritage and so on that are part and parcel of a way of looking at nature and living nature and integrating it. And when everyone does that, you find that actually everyone is an ethnic minority. This is where we want to get, that we recognize there's no such thing as an overall British culture. You might be from Yorkshire, you might be from the Hebrides, you might be from Cornwall, you might be from a very little patch of Northumberland, and culturally you are unique. You got something to bring. You got your stories. You got your heritage. You got different feelings about the landscape. Some people will bring their passion about the hills that we call mountains. Others will have lived in forested areas. Others would have lived on Dartmoor and the open landscape. And all of us have this richness that we bring. And this is what it is about cultural richness that we share across the cultures. Um, I feel that I feel that you're, you know, saying these things and reading your writing as well. It's a particularly important moment to be thinking about these kinds of things as well, right? With, with at least increasing media attention on the issue of immigrants, refugees, migration, with the referendum coming up, and with, again, growing media debate around the concept of what is Britishness. Does being part of the EU undermine our own concept of Britishness? And for me as well growing up with and having a lifelong interest in nature and spending a lot of time in the countryside, 
but recognizing exactly what you talk about, that the people who get to enjoy very special wild places in the countryside are vastly predominantly white people, um, albeit with the kind of variety of backgrounds and cultures that you talk about. But perhaps part of the part of the issue is that if you if you live in the countryside, if you spend most of the time in your country, your time in the countryside, you're not exposed to a, a greater variety than that, and it can create this myth that the countryside is somehow British, and there's this British countryside that we need to preserve and protect, in the same way as that wider British identity that a lot of people are concerned about. I'm infinitely optimistic, otherwise I would never have started my work. <laughs> yeah. And you actually see funny examples in the countryside. There are things I call cosmopolitan villages. Mm. And I lived in one, Llanbaris in North Wales at the bottom of Snowdon. Yeah, yeah. Which everyone knows about because they all go there, they take the train, the train up, up from the mountain. little village. Yeah. And so. <laughs> Why is that a cosmopolitan village? It's because Llanbaris is one of the rock climbing capitals of the world. Mm. So over decades, people have come from all over the world to this tiny little village. And sometimes, you know, the really fanatic ones, there were, for example, a lot of Americans who stayed and lived in the village for something like two years because they wanted to climb everything before they went home. So this village has been responding and incorporating cultures and people from all over the world to the extent that they don't blink an, blink an eyelid at anyone walking in. Mm. And we also have this experience, it's about getting used to each other. You know, a lot of the things about racism and so on, it's actually very simple to solve. It is to enable people to just meet each other as mm. human beings. Mm. When you have not met people from another country, you then have this so-called privilege of imagining what they are like. You can imagine them good if you want to, you can imagine them as monsters if you want to, and nobody will contradict you because you've never met them. But once you meet them, it is absolutely different. That's why in countries like um, you know, that Hong Kong and so on, where there's a huge population, you mix and mix. After a while, you just don't care anymore. And London is getting that way. So many people come to London and say they feel so comfortable. Nobody stares at you. They've seen it all, you know. And when we start to actually taking groups into the countryside and nature reserves and, and so on, people used to stare. And I used to make them laugh so that they didn't <laughs> care. I used to say, you know, countryside people, they stare at anything. <laughs> they would stare at a London person with pink hair. Yeah. They will stare at anything that's different. So they're not staring at you because you're an ethnic minority. They're staring at you because you are strange yeah. to them. They haven't yeah. seen you before. And they would just laugh instead of being, you know, made to feel uncomfortable. And when we repeatedly take, take people to places and we would actually do things like approaching a local school and say, would they like to come out and welcome and meet people and perhaps picnic together and so on. And it just breaks the ice. People actually, instead of finding you know, people from different cultures as being strange and perhaps really alien and weird or so on, they find them interesting. And I always say to people, you know, we're all human beings and we live in different environments across the world. It's environments which shape our ways of life. So that if you live in a very harsh environment, you know, like Eskimos and so on, 
you will have a very severe and very, very disciplined way of life because you die easily in that place. Or you live in the tropics and in warmer places and so on, and you are more relaxed and you pick the fruits of the forest and they are there all the time around the year. And so on. So all these things form your character, your culture, the way you live, the way you think, and so on. But one thing that is happening, all it is doing, is develop one facet of the range of human personality. And I always say that if you meet people from a different culture, if you allow them to, there's always a gift. They give you something of yourself back within that range of humanity. So that I see the range of cultures as illustrating the immense possibility and potential of the human personality that we can claim by meeting each other. So in a way, it's very exciting mm. to go to different places and to, to actually um, discover ourselves and other people. Well, you actually find that some people go to another country and find that they're more comfortable there for something they cannot understand. Yeah. <laughs> because a different part of their personality comes out that they think is much better than the part of the personality in the country in which they were born. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I have a friend who's from Catalonia in Spain and uh, has been to Indonesia and lived there and worked there for sort of a year then he's gone back to Spain then for another six months and so on and so forth <laughs> and no matter how many times he promises his girlfriend that he's going to permanently move back to Spain he always ends up back in Indonesia and he's a slightly different person there and I think he just prefers he feels more at home there for, mm. so, for sort of a reason that you describe and that thing about getting a gift back from that experience I feel that's also something that comes about from spending time in green spaces and from spending time with nature as well something is reflected back to you and you get part of yourself back from it as well. It's a very similar experience. I think so. I think that we, because nature once upon a time and until recently was so much part of our lives mm. that we almost took it for granted. Mm. We forget what nature gives us and what it awakens in us. For example, all the rhythms of the dance, it comes from the rhythms of nature. Mm. So much music. Like Messian, he always went into the woods and he wrote down the rhythms with which the birds sang in order to write his music. Mm. He says it gives him new inspiration, how they counterpoint each other and things like that. So the music of nature, the sensations in our bodies, it makes us more sensitive as people. We become more aware. So it's opening up again the potential of our senses in a way that, and, and it affects the way we even think as well or that non-thinking kind of thinking mm. so it really does extend and, and make us be fuller as human beings do you have a particularly strong memory of a particular individual or group that you helped to you know have connection with the green space and it was a particularly powerful moment or effect on them Yes, very early on when I was working with Black Environment Network as its director and, and did a London-based project in King's Cross, we were working, trying to find an area, I think we were working with one of the, what was known as BTCV groups then, finding a place where a group of Bangladeshi women, they wanted to plant some vegetables, because again, you know, 
we of course think of crops and so on as highly domesticated and, and so on. But for most people, that is as close to nature as you can get. You can't get closer than having a plant that eat and become yourself. <laughs> right, you're really reconnecting with it then, aren't you? Yes, and they of course longed for certain vegetables that they didn't have in this country and yeah. they wanted to see if they could grow. So BTCV, after trying desperately hard to find, find a piece of land where they could grow something, found a disused cemetery. <laughs> and they had to convince the group, it's really okay, there are no more bodies there. <laughs> And in the end, they did plant vegetables there. Okay. And at the end of that project, like every funder, they demand a report. So they go to the women and they say, please tell us what was the best about this project. Did it make you more healthy? Did you come out in the fresh air? Did you get exercise? All those very practical things. Yeah. And the woman says, the best thing about this project was that our bare feet were on Mother Earth again. Mm. It was so passionate. And you can see again, you know, the, the ways in which so many people still live in the countryside, in different parts of the world. Their contact with the mother is so real, yeah. so physical, so mm. emotional and so in spiritual on all those levels. And when they said that for that report, it was full of heart, you know, it was said with their full spirit and their heart and their mind, every, everything. Yeah. So it also shows us too how, you know, when, when in the West we say Mother Earth, you know, it's an idea, isn't it? Well, I was more, more than so physically and emotionally informed yeah. Yeah. by your way of life. Yeah. Well, I was listening to a conversation recently, to a different podcast actually, where part of the conversation was about this concept of the mother and the return to the mother and whether or not culturally we're seeing, you know, whether it's through the rise of female politicians and a kind of rejection of masculine control of our politics and our financial sector, or whether it's through kind of Western countries importing, probably in a very, uh, you know, not with a very deep understanding of them, but importing bits of spirituality from Eastern cultures, um, whether it's through reconnection to to nature, you know, a sort of return to or a kind of comfort that's increasingly found in this concept of the mother uh, and mother figures as our world becomes, you know, increasingly fast-paced, increasingly technology-driven as rates of anxiety rise. It's really interesting that they described it in that way, and I think this concept of the mother is, yeah, it's just something really powerful in our culture at the moment. Absolutely, and uh, with the 60s and so on, there was a great coming together of the East and West. But I always think that it's a pity that the West, or if I talk about UK, that it forgets what it has crushed in its own culture. Mm -hmm. And there is a revival of Celtic shamanism, mm -hmm. of the goddess movement, mm -hmm. all those things that were here. You know, the further, because we are simply human, the further back we go into our history, to prehistory, we were all the same. We are all connected passionately to the earth. Mm. We all put the feminine before the masculine, mm. of being enveloped in that idea of fertility of the earth and of the woman and of the caring and so on. It's all the same. 
So we, we actually reach back to what is very fundamentally human. I just want to ask a couple more things, really. One is that, um, so I'm involved in uh, a network of young people who care about nature, who some of them work in nature conservation or are studying to work in that profession, that sector. As, you know, a lot of them will probably become managers, leaders, directors within the big conservation NGOs and the small ones possibly as well in this country. What would be your message to them as they take over the reins of power and leadership within those organisations for the next couple of decades? Pay attention to themselves as people within nature. Mm. If they give themselves the time to make those connections, to really open up their own protection, potential of being really full human beings that are part of nature, they can't go wrong. That's good advice. And um, we spoke about your poetry and your art oh, yes. earlier, and those are things you're still you're still doing to this day, right? And you did you bring along some things you wanted to share? Oh yes, I, I did bring along a poem, and this poem is interesting. Now and then, I'm I'm very interested in courses and on um, storytelling and, and things like that and, and people who are very conscious of connections with the land and they actually now do sort of conscious exercise for people to connect with the land where you would over a weekend work with different people and then you would choose a piece of land that you identify with and you just sit with it yeah. in silence and I wrote a poem called Speaking Land would you like to hear that? Yes please okay. In time, the land came to me, that tiny bit of stream, bounded by nondescript rocks, that at a certain moment spoke. In time, I abandoned myself to let it advance closer, buoyed by humble speeches of four favoured bits of rock. I sat silent by the stream, looked right to where I put the first rock beneath the bush, and let time become nothing. Inside, I ran, swam, and flew, looked into indigo places. I wandered large and small as stars that spin and burn. In time, Dragon Branch raised his sweet, somber head above. The water beneath sang a little, and I sat myself silent, still. In time, water that gathered to the left as pool foamed, declared itself a scrying pool. I looked and saw a world. A lilting song broke free, listened to the moving air that has strewn all its words upon sky-blue drifting pools. In gratitude, I did sing again as the light began to fade. All before me chose to speak a sweet goodbye to repeat. Very beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> My pleasure.
Is there anything else that uh, you wanted to share or to say? I think that speaking to you has been lovely because you in your questions were able to also bring so much forward for me to think about and to link together. And I just think that it's very important for people to feel that nature is within their lives mm. and within every action that they take. It's like a butterfly's wing influence the future. Don't underestimate the small actions as if you don't make a difference. Because sometimes people don't do things because they think it's too small. Mm. But actually it is the smallest things that actually multiply and become big influences in our lives. And none of us are too small to take action. That's a good note to end on. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> I really enjoyed that. Good. I enjoyed it too. Good. <laughs>